And now, it's time once again for the show that gives glorious voice to 25 million business owners across the fruited plain. Radio Free Enterprise with Frank Felker. Thank you, Dude Walker. Yes, indeed, I am Frank Felker. Welcome back to Radio Free Enterprise. My guest today is David Belden of ExecuVision International. David, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. You know, you and I have known each other for a long time, and uh, we've had a number of laughs here or there. We've had a couple of cries together as well. But in today's interview, we're going to be talking about a very serious subject. So we may have a little bit of a hard time trying to keep the atmosphere light. Uh, probably we can we can throw in a couple of uh, stories, uh, war stories from the past that will help uh, with the levity level. But... Um, the reason I've asked you to come here today is because I think you're the perfect person to speak to how businesses can get through the, the crisis we're in the midst of right now. The pandemic, uh, the resulting economic dislocation and depression or what, who knows exactly what's coming because of all the experience that you've had working with businesses over the years. Now, I normally do not start out asking my guests to talk about their backstory. But I think it's important in this case so that people understand the experience that you've had and, for lack of a better phrase, why they ought to listen to what you have to say today. So uh, if you would, um, talk a little bit about your background uh, prior to becoming a, uh, a business coach, if that's the right uh, word, an executive uh, coach and consultant, and then up through the many years you've had and all the companies you've worked with, please. Well, to begin with, I am a child of the 60s. And I, uh, at a very young age, uh, 17, I started university and got bored with it. And six months later, dropped out and actually hitchhiked around the United States for a while. And then while I was still 18, decided to go to Europe. So I moved to Copenhagen, Denmark when I was 18. My first job was as a dishwasher in a luxury hotel restaurant for 85 cents an hour. And somehow I ended up uh, running companies. It was not my plan or intention. It was simply something that happened. I seem to have a uh, innate disability or inability to say no. So when people ask me if I could do something, I always said yes, and then tried to figure out how to do it. During that time, I eventually went to work for a very large international company, a global company based in France, and through them had the opportunity to do several international startups and uh, three major international turnarounds. So I got to travel and live all over the world. I spent 30 years abroad altogether, lived uh, in three companies, countries in Europe and uh, two in, in Asia, and worked in another 25 or 26 countries all together. So my role has always been to identify the problem. No one ever asked me to turn around the company that was doing well. <laughs> so it was always a crisis situation, and uh, I had to get in and figure out what was going on and lay out a plan, build a team, 
and get out of there again as quickly as possible. So a turnaround would, would typically take anywhere from uh, two to three years. Uh, startups would take anywhere from six months to a year. And it was just an amazing opportunity and challenge and lots of fun along the way, different languages and different cultures, and identifying some of the commonality that are universally true in, in any organization. And once I had identified some of those, then I was able to use that same model to help other companies uh, you know, develop and, and restructure. I came back to the States after 30 years abroad and uh, became a Vistage chair. And from there, I got to work individually with a lot of companies. I've worked with about uh, 400 companies over the last 22 years. And that's where you and I first met uh, uh, when you were a Vistage chair. And I was one of your uh, CEOs uh, in the uh, group, uh, peer group, and also the direct uh, counseling and consulting that you did to me as I was trying to get a startup off the ground uh, right around the year 2000 during the dot-com era. Now, uh, that was the, uh, the next step I wanted to move to, which is you and I happened to be having breakfast together on the morning of 9-11. Uh, and uh, <laughs> prior to me having a, a meeting with the uh, venture capitalist who had put a couple of million dollars into the dot-com that I was uh, uh, CEO of. And, um, you know, we had our breakfast and I was crying in my cereal over all the troubles I was having. And then uh, you and I stood up and we went to pay for our breakfast. And as I recall, we walked up to the cashier and they had television monitors on the, on the wall above the uh, cash register. And my recollection is I looked up and saw the first tower smoking and on fire. And just as we walked yeah. up, the second plane hit the second tower. And uh, from that moment forward, everyone's lives, everyone remembers where they were at that time. Uh, everyone's life was changed, and certainly it had a dramatically negative uh, impact on business. What you and I have talked about is trying to take lessons uh, from the experience of 9-11, and you told me uh, in a pre-interview meeting that you believe a, a more apt analogy, apt analogy, is uh, the financial crisis of 2008. Can you tell us about, as you said, you've worked with over 400 companies, what exactly were you up to at that time? Let's say 9-11. How many companies were you working with? What types of companies and that type of thing? Right. So I had two visited groups, uh, peer groups for CEOs, and uh, all together had 32 members, so two groups of, of 16. And they were very, very diverse groups, very diverse companies, both in terms of age of, of the CEO, of types of business, gender diversity, um, ethnic diversity, all of my groups were always just a composite of the entire business community. So some of them were, were large corporations, some were small startups, um, just a, a wide range representing everything in American business. Okay. And what would you say, in general, was the impact of 9-11 on, on these individual companies? You know, the immediate impact was completely the shock and denial and the 
unbelievable uh, effect that it had nationally, politically, socially. The people were, were really confused and just no longer felt safe, no longer felt that there was the security that they had always come to expect. And that shock, that was one of the, the first times we really started talking about leadership and the role of leadership in any kind of crisis. And one of the first and major uh, responsibilities of any leader in a time of crisis is to reduce anxiety. Even though we as leaders are feeling anxious, we cannot allow that anxiety to permeate the organization. So that, that's always a challenge for, for any, uh, any leader in a crisis situation. What might you suggest to business leaders who are faced with this task of trying to reduce anxiety as far as any steps that they can take during this crisis? Well, the first thing is that we have to admit that we're in a crisis. You know, the original meaning of the word crisis is turning point. So in any crisis, we have the choice of either attempting to return to what was or turning toward a new future. And people need to know that the leader has a plan. I'm not suggesting that we say that everything's okay, don't worry, just trust us. What I'm saying is that we acknowledge as leaders, yes, this is a very serious crisis, and we have a plan. We are working towards something new, and we need your help in figuring out exactly how we're going to do it. That's great. That's great advice and something that I think, uh, although difficult, can be done very quickly uh, by a leader who chooses to, to do that, chooses to make that choice, if you will, of stepping up to the plate and providing some direction, uh, oftentimes so people decide they're not going to step up to the plate. And unfortunately, we've seen a number of examples of that recently. Now, yes. you had said, uh, you know, I had really thought that we could have this great uh, comparison and contrast between 9-11 and the current situation. But in our discussion, as I mentioned, you said that you think there's a more direct analogy uh, between what's going on right now with the financial crisis of 2008. Let's start with why you believe that's the case. Well, 9-11 was a very American event. It was very specific to America. It had devastating impact for a short time. And we recovered quickly from it. There was some leadership. There was some direction forward. And people felt that things were being taken care of. The economic collapse of 2008 was global. It was the entire world economy that suddenly collapsed. It was an incredibly serious situation. And you know, the, the stock market was halved in one day. And suddenly we had to adjust to this new reality. It required that every company immediately begin to look at their foundations. I had, at that time, I had 32 message members. We all got together and started talking about what needed to be done. Every company did the same thing. They reduced staff, actually got rid of people they didn't need because 
when times are good, we always keep people on. It's easier to keep people on than to hire the people who aren't really producing. So every company had these people, got rid of them, got really back to core business, got really focused on what business are we really in? What is it we actually do? What service do we provide that people still need? And then we consciously made an effort within the group to transfer all fixed costs to variable costs. So for example, uh, one of the companies in my group had uh, eight people in their marketing department. At the end of 2008, when we really started getting serious about this, he reduced that to just one person wow. in the company managing outsourced marketing. So one person to manage outside resources, which then became a variable cost. He was only paying for what he was actually receiving. All companies did that in 2008 and 2009. That's why we had a jobless recovery. When the economy <laughs> started to improve, companies realized they didn't need nearly as many people in, in their organization. And that is exactly what is going to happen now. Um, well, let me... Um, jobs are such an important topic uh, in the mix here. Yeah. Uh, it's so difficult to let somebody go, whether it's good times or bad. It's a human connection or disconnection and breaking. Uh, you and I both know how difficult it is to let somebody go, whether it's a layoff yeah. or firing or what have you. That's something, as you, you mentioned, this is something that leaders today, business leaders, have to face up to. They may have to make yeah. job cuts on a large scale. It's so hard. What sort of advice would you offer to someone who is facing a decision like that? So the first thing to recognize is that profit covers a wealth of sin. So when we are doing well, every organization keeps people on who don't really belong in the organization. And it's simply easier to keep them than to have these serious conversations and to, to let people go. So the first thing that happens in a crisis is we look at all the people who we know don't really belong in the organization, they're not really contributing, and we let them go. And then we have to look seriously at people who we can actually do without, even though they're high producers, they are loyal and everything else. And we have to make a really serious decision. I believe, it has been my, my fundamental belief about organizations, is that the leader of an organization has more responsibility to the organization than to any individual. Hmm. So we have to be really honest with ourselves and say, who are the people that we need to survive and who are the people that we can at least temporarily let go? And those are gut-wrenching and horrible decisions to have to make. That's what keeps us awake at night. That's what makes leadership so difficult. The true leadership is making sure that the organization survives. That makes a lot of sense. Your commitment, your responsibility is to the organization first. Um, I know there's a lot of layers to that onion of human resources and legalities and so forth of letting somebody go. But is there anything in particular that somebody, a boss, a leader should keep in mind when they're having that human transaction with somebody they're letting go? 
the tone of voice they should use, the approach, uh, trying to be fair. What What is just one thing or whatever you got that can make it a little bit easier for both people on either side of that conversation? Well, one of the things, it depends, of course, on the situation. If this is a situation where you are actually doing a reduction in force and you're actually letting several people go, when I had to do that in the turnarounds I did, I brought all of those people together, and that might be 10 people. And I would explain to them why they all let go. It was not about them individually. It was not that they weren't good people and that they weren't competent. It was simply the organization could no longer afford to have them on board. And that was never easy. It's the worst thing that we do as leaders, and it was necessary. And I actually found that most people accepted that quite well. I mean, people would ask, why me? Why not someone else? And I was honest with them and said, can the other people, people working here, have some skills and some, some experience that you don't have? And we need them in the organization right now, and at the moment, we simply can't afford to have you here. That's great advice. Another point you brought up is getting the leader to, uh, and through their organization, to focus more finely on what is their actual mission? What does this business do? And and so forth. Paint a picture for us of what does that mean? If you could give an example, you don't have to name names, of a certain company or a certain industry that might have strayed a little bit from the straight line of, of what they're supposed to be doing, and then how they got that turned around and got themselves better focused. What happens typically in organizations, and a lot of the companies that I've worked with are founder-owned organizations or family business. And originally, people understood completely. The founders, the, the family understood why they were in the business they were in. And then over time, as the organization grows, we forget to tell people that. We forget why we're actually in business and what business we're actually in. So in a crisis situation, we have to go back and look at that. And we actually, in, in my district groups, uh, almost uh, annually did a review, which is called, what business are we really in? And then we had to talk about what are the value adds that we have in this company? What are the differentiators in this company that would inspire people to buy our product or service? And then trying to identify exactly how that becomes important in a time when people are, are saving money and, and no longer buying all kinds of frivolous things, why would they still buy from us? And that's a really, really hard uh, exercise to go through because everyone sort of has a myth in the back of their mind about what the company is all about. Mm. And they've forgotten that this will they haven't really defined it. And secondly, other people in the company have no idea that that myth exists. Now, can you explain, I understand what you just said, but how does that help during a time of crisis? How is that beneficial for the organization at that time? The most important thing in any company at any time is that people have clarity of vision. What is this company about? Why does this company even exist? 
And once I have clarity of vision, then I as an individual, as a member of the organization, have to have role clarity, clarity of my own role. I have to have a line of sight for what I do every day to the actual vision the company is trying to accomplish. Otherwise, I know that I'm busy and I'm doing a lot, but I don't know if it has any effect. In times of crisis, when we get really, really specific about the mission that we're on, this is what we're trying to accomplish, and this is, this is your role in accomplishing this, we enlist people's enthusiasm by, by giving them that clarity. It's amazing, in the 400 companies I've worked with, several thousand executives, it is amazing how many of them don't know what is expected of them. And that is the main complaint of most people in an organization. I'm not sure exactly what we're trying to do here. I work really hard every day. I don't know if it has any positive effect on the company or not. <laughs> I, especially in family-owned and family-founded business, I've seen that time and time again. I understand exactly what you mean. Um, I want to come back to the idea of downsizing and outsourcing, more specifically outsourcing. I love the expression yeah. you may, used, which was converting as many fixed costs as possible to variable costs. And I just yes. want to make it clear that fixed costs is something you're going to have to pay every month, no matter whether you sell dollar one worth of goods or services, and variable costs go up and down in alignment with sales, yeah. generally speaking. So clearly, if you outsource marketing, uh, for example, if you're, you're having a really hard time, well, you just stop you know, those contracts or whatever it is you're outsourcing. What are other areas where somebody could uh, reduce overhead, fixed costs, and so forth? Uh, something, let's say, like their plant and equipment or overhead insurances. Is there any other area where you can have, find low-hanging fruit where you can cut costs? Yes, absolutely everywhere. <laughs> so, so I've looked at, at organizations, and I, I say that there are only two things we ever have to think about. One thing is process. Do we have a good process? Every company has a process, whether it's conscious or not. Every process will deliver exactly the results it was designed to deliver. So if we're not efficient, if we're not getting the results that we want, we have to look at process first. And in times of crisis, we tend to look at every single process in the company and say, is this necessary? Is it productive? Are we doing it in the most efficient way? Could we outsource this? Could we have someone else do it? Could artificial intelligence help us? Could machine learning help us? Could we use mechanical turf? Could we have some other company do it for us at a, at a level? Could we hire a contractor to do it rather than have an employee do it? So that's the first piece of it, to look constantly at every single step in your process, your workflow analysis, and eliminate all of the repetitive work being done. And I did that in, in turnaround. That was the first thing we always had to do. So the first thing is to really get that focus down to are we doing only the essential work? And then we find that, okay, we have some people here that we can actually let go. Maybe we can hire them to work after we're not going to have them as a fixed cost any longer. Now, what this then 
flows out to is we need as much real estate. We don't have as many people. We don't need as large an office as we used to have. Is there anything we can do with the extra office space we have? Do we see. actually need into the company? Now, one of the things that's happening in the crisis is that people are now working remotely. For years, companies have said, we can't have people work remotely because we need them in the office. We need them to be able to check on what they're doing. And we don't actually trust they will put in eight hours a day if they're not here. Right. And now we're finding that it doesn't matter if they work eight hours a day as long as they deliver the product and the, the, the results that we need. So we start looking again at so what do we actually need in the office? Do we need this much office space? Um, Inc. Magazine just did a, a survey uh, of people who have been working remotely. And 72% of them said they did not want to come back to the office the way they had been before. This is going to, again, have far-reaching effects on the real estate market, the restaurants, the coffee shops, the, you know, everything, uh, mom and pop businesses, the bodegas, <coughs> the um, uh, cleaners, you know, the, the dry cleaners, all those small and story businesses that support people working in offices is simply going to disappear. And this is going to have a very far-reaching, long-term effect on the entire economy. That's very painful to think about. Now, you were just... time, 40% of the jobs are not coming back. Right. 42% of the jobs that are, are, are lost at the moment are not going to be, just simply not going to exist. That's a big because number. People are figuring out better ways of doing things. You, uh, in terms of people working remotely and trusting whether or not they're getting any work done, I, uh, I always, I love the expression, don't confuse activity with production. Uh, you know, <laughs> just because somebody's at the office and they're staring into their computer screen doesn't mean that they're doing anything productive. Um, but you, you brought up the, the big word, the T word, trust, uh, in a previous yes. conversation we're having. And you told me about how important trust is in this period of time. Uh, yes. Just rather than me trying to synopsize what you've said, why don't you say it? You can say it a lot better than me. A friend of mine, Dan Pink, has written some really wonderful books about uh, leadership and, and organizational structure. Talks about the results-only work environment, where we no longer care where or when people do their job. We only care about the results that they produce. And his emphasis is that we have to be very, very careful to clearly uh, explain the expectations we have. And once we have those expectations clear with the employee, this is what you need to deliver, this quality, this quantity at this time. Then we have to figure out how do we measure that? If I give you a, a project that is going to take six months, I can't wait until month number five to find out that you're going to actually deliver it late. So I have to have, as a manager, I have to have some metric that I can see that you're actually hitting milestones on what. So very clear expectation, 
very clear measurement so that I can tell remotely whether or not you are living up to the agreement that we made. If we don't have those things, then everyone is going to be anxious. And what it requires on my part is that once we've established those metrics and those expectations, that you actually live up to it. I have to trust you to do that. And one of the major challenges, especially in bound-grown business, is learning to trust learning to delegate. Many of us who have our own businesses have our own businesses because we didn't trust people. <laughs> we were really good at doing what we do, and if we want to keep doing that, we have a really hard time delegating. One of the reasons we found our own businesses that grow is we don't delegate. So this all ties into we are now being forced against our will, but we are being forced to have much more trust in individuals to get the work done in their own way, on their own time, without us looking over their shoulder. And we, as leaders, have to figure out a way to measure that. I used to actually ask people uh, to tell me how they would like to be measured. Oh, I like Once that. Once we had discussed and the, and, and the outcome they were to deliver, and I would ask them, how will I be comfortable? <laughs> you know, what things do you think I should be measuring with me so that I would be comfortable that you're actually making progress? That's great advice. I really like that. Now, you had told me uh, about an organization called Trust Across America. Uh, yes. Is this something that could be helpful to business leaders who are trying to find their way through this crisis? Yes, Trust Across America is focused on primarily on internal trust. Not on, when companies talk about trust, they often talk about, do our customers trust us? And that, that's more public relations and branding than, than actual trust. When I talk about trust and when Trust Across America focuses on trust, it's internal. Does the organization, the people in the organization, trust other people in the organization? And they have developed an excellent, very, very quick survey so that the entire company can take a survey and report back on their level of trust in the organization. And then we can take that real-time data and work with the executive team to say, okay, here are the results. And it measures things like accountability and integrity, and transparency, honesty. Um, and you get some real-time data about the state of the company. And I will tell you, I've used it several times in several companies, and universally, the first thing that, that the, the CEO or the executive team would say is, that can't possibly be true. <laughs> I say, well, here's the data, you believe it or not, this is what people are saying at this moment in time. Interesting. So the idea of being able to take a snapshot of where you are right now in terms of trust is critically important. I think more important now than ever before because you know, people are really worried. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it ties together with the leadership uh, part. Uh, you know, each of the employees, everybody, whether they're a leader or a follower of what they do, we're all scared. We don't know yes. what's going on with the uh, with the virus. Yeah. We don't know what's coming uh, economically. We don't know what's going to happen with our industry. I mean, there's just so many unknowns that bringing together leadership with trust 
uh, it's just, if nothing else, it's going to help people sleep better at night, which is bound to yeah, um, improve productivity. And yet, as you yeah. mentioned, uh, trust is uh, not something that comes naturally to most uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and leadership is something that very few of us are, are born with inherently, but virtually anyone can step into that role. Uh, and perhaps this level of crisis will be sufficient to motivate people to do that. Yes, and it requires a different type of leadership. I mean, if you are running a stable company in manufacturing, for example, and you're doing, you have good process and you have standard operating procedures and you have a very good uh, organizational structure where everybody knows their place, that works wonderfully in a stable environment. We are no longer in a stable environment. Mm. It's the, the equivalent to, to the military where you have the, the regular army and then you have the Green Berets. The flag behind me is from my son with the Green Beret. Um, the Green Berets go out and, and, and take on missions that everyone thinks were impossible because that's their job. They're always looking around the corner. They're always looking at what could happen. They're looking at doing scenario planning constantly to say, these are the contingencies we need to look at. And everything they do, these small teams of totally dedicated people, everything they do is based on absolute trust in everyone else on the team. That's a totally different type of organization than the standard organization where everything is command and control. Now, David, we're just about out of time uh, I think we could talk about this for a week, probably, and I'm sure you would have, <laughs> have enough uh, information and wisdom to share with us to fill up uh, that week. But with that in mind, if somebody wanted to learn more from you, about you, perhaps contact you to, to work with you and have you help them their comp uh, have you help their company, what's the best way for them to reach out? Well, they can contact me through my website. Um, the contact section there. The website gives some ideas about the, the type of work we do. And I would be happy to talk with people. Uh, for me, what is most important at this stage of my life is working with companies that are truly focused on transformation, where they realize that something massive and important has to change and helping them think through what that actually means both for the senior executive team and for employees. So I would be happy to talk with people who are interested in that. Um, you know, let's have a chat and see where it goes from there. I will put a link to your website in the show notes. Uh, for viewers and listeners, goodness only knows where you may be watching this or listening to this. Uh, I will place the link anywhere and everywhere that it's available, but otherwise uh, you can go to iExecuVision.com to find uh, David's yeah. website. Now, I'd like to I'd like to wrap up with this. Uh, you were a tremendous help to me as the CEO of of a dot com, a venture backed company, at, uh, at during the crisis of two thousand one and before nine eleven. And uh, many people could benefit from that as well during this time. I mean, we just mentioned working with you, but whatever, there are a lot of people who may not uh, want to take that step, but still could benefit from coaching and 
having uh, being involved with a peer group and so forth. How could either coaching and or peer group membership uh, help somebody during a crisis like this? We all need people who are outside of our own uh, sphere of influence. And especially the higher up you are in the organization, the more important it is to have someone who is helping you see what you're doing. I was a member of uh, the peer group before I became a chair of one. And as a member, the most important thing that I ever learned from them was how I showed up to other people. I thought that I was making a certain type of impression, and my peers told me that that was not true. <laughs> and they helped me understand that I was not communicating as effectively as I could have been because I was, in their view, a bit too arrogant. <laughs> so, a bit too what? A bit too arrogant. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Having someone actually hold up a mirror, having someone ask you what if, having someone work with you around not knowing what to do, but helping you understand why you're not doing it. Almost all of the people that I've worked with know what they need to be doing. They're just not doing it. So having someone on the outside helping hold you accountable is a tremendous advantage. Without a doubt. And uh, I recall that accountability and that uh, outside perspective uh, I got in spades, not only from you, but also from my peers in the group. So I do think, and although it's not generally uh, free or even inexpensive to join a group like that, it could well be the best money a, a founder or leader uh, in the business world could invest right now. Yes, absolutely. David Belden, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Frank. I really enjoyed having a chat and a chance to talk with you. Thanks again to David Belden, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Frank Felker saying, I'll see you on the radio. Forgiving your entrepreneurial sins with a gentle wave of his microphone, here's Frank Felker. Frank Felker.